Untitled Beatles Podcast. All right, man. Okay. Let's go over our viewing notes, shall we? Shall we just go through the film and point out some things of interest and note? Yeah, and I think we can start by saying the intro that you've either heard or will hear right now in British voice and ABC voice is meant and written to avoid a lawsuit. The following is a dramatization using actors of the early career of the Beatles. It's based on factual accounts, including the recollections of former Beatle Pete Best as well as other sources. The music sung during this period by the Beatles was recorded for this dramatization by the group Rain. Yes, yes, you're right. This is like a uh, disclaimer of sorts, (laughs) right? Gotta be, right? You don't do that for artistic purposes. (laughs) This music's not performed by the Beatles. There are no actual Beatles performing on this. It's been performed by a cover band before. That's actually been a thing called Rain. Yes, all music performed by the group Rain. El Grupo Rain. Playing John, it's Eddie Lineberry. Chuck Coffey is Paul. Bill Connerney is George. I'm sure I'm saying that right. And Stephen Wright, the uh, stand-up comic, is Ringo. Uh, Rain were a tribute band formed in 1975 in Laguna Beach, California. For legal reasons, Rain never calls its performers the names of the Beatles on stage. (laughs) They're Ron, Saul, Jorge, and Dingo. (laughs) Baby ate my Ringo. They played the Jerry Lewis Telethon in 1978, and that is my belief where maybe Dick Clark got wind of these guys Ah. to perhaps have them do the music for this thing. Usually Dick Clark got wind from Ed McMahon. (laughs) On TV's bloopers and practical jokes, (laughs) yeah, between uh, takes. Is this a good time to mention how weird it is that Ryan Seacrest has become Dick Clark, but everything has Dick Clark's name? <laughs> Ryan Seacrest hosts Dick Clark's Rockin' New Year's Eve on Ryan Seacrest's Dick Clark Rockin' New Year's Eve. Yeah. <laughs> you know what happens? Like, if <laughs> if you give Ryan Seacrest a wedgie, you can see it says on the back of his underwear, Dick Clark Productions. <laughs> DCP. Yeah. His mother wrote Dick Clark Productions on his underwear. We're going hopping, we're going hopping today, things are popping. Yeah, so like you mentioned, the American version opens with this scene in a, in a car. They're kind of on their way to America or something? Or It looks like they're either driving directly to America or more likely to Heathrow. <laughs> yeah, right. Hey, Brian, I want to meet Mickey Mouse. Or does Mickey Mouse want to meet you, John? Does anyone want to meet you, John? Does anyone want to meet us? How do you mean? Well, America's got everything she wants, right? What does she want with the Beatles? Yeah, that's true. America chews up pop artists like bubblegum. It's a scene that's not even used at any point in the movie, in the British version. No. It, it, it's like, it's, it reminds me of, and forgive me if we've talked about this before, but back in the 80s when they would show syndicated movies with extra scenes that weren't in the film, like Caddyshack has three or four scenes that were never in the movie. It can't get on DVD. This, there's like a weirdo Easter eggy thing that literally a scene that was not seen anywhere else in the world opens up the ABC TV movie of this. And it sets the context right as they're going to America and uh, it's John and Brian and the boys basically kind of kibitzing with each other about being nervous. And Brian's like, oh, you you, you can't be nervous. You're going to change the world. And John's like, well, of course we're going to change the world. <laughs> and then you see a very right. long take of him that leads into the opening credits. And 
and Tony Mendoza, mm. the opening credits of the film and the ABC version are in totally different fonts. They are different <laughs> fonts with different music and yeah. different order of credits, and P3Z Nuts going to lay the fuck down what those fonts is, S-I-C. Uh, no, I can't. <laughs> Attention font lovers. The international font sleuths of America are currently on strike, citing unpaid wages, insufficient lighting, expired craft service, and unreasonable demands, particularly from low-budget podcasts. Hey, ho, these font demands have got to go. Hey, ho, these font demands have got to go. Well, yeah, man. Yeah, so yeah, we get we set the scene. We're back in Liverpool. It's 1961 or 60? 61, I think it says. No, I think that early it's 59. The worldwide theatrical release begins the story in 1961, whereas the American television broadcast picks it up in 1959. I think it has something to do with the international dateline and pagan ice cream lasers. Well, yeah, we get these aerial shots of Liverpool. You got the three fabs and leathers. They're eating fish and chips. George can't figure out these bleeding cords. Still can't figure out these bleeding cords. George is playing electric guitar. <laughs> while, while walking, eating fish and chips. And he, he can't figure out the bleeding cords. And then there's a joke in the UK version that's not the American one that's... Hey, your fingers are all bloody. You want to watch that, you know, you won't be able to scratch your ass. <laughs> Cut it out of the American one. Americans can't. Billy Graham. Yeah, Billy Graham, who who he makes an appearance later. Yeah, a teaser. Billy Graham's in this in a way. <laughs> <laughs> so I love that. This, so yeah, it's like we're establishing. Hey, we're not famous yet. We're just these young kids wearing leather jackets. They start playing football with a bunch of school children. <laughs> it's called footy, but sure, I guess Anglophile. <laughs> <laughs> or kickball or whatever, yeah. yeah. And then John kicks a Toys R Us kickball through a window, and suddenly we're in a Church of Latter Day Saints commercial from the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. So then we cut to a scene that's not in the American version. Which blew me away. It's a tilting shot that starts at the feet, the bare feet of a, a what ends up being a nude woman who's sitting there. She's earning her money. It's the spaghetti woman from Magical Mystery Tour. <laughs> in the John Dream scene. I don't think it's Aunt Jessie or whatever, right? <laughs> it's Uncle Jesse. How come Tony don't know his Duke's a hazard? <laughs> so John is sitting there next to Cynthia, who's also in this class. So it's, yeah, it's a new drawing class, right? The cut. The, oh, we're in the art school, right? And John is just sitting there, like, staring at this woman, not drawing. He's being, like, a kind of a perv, a weirdo perv. And then here's, I guess, that humor they were talking about in the uh, the movie quote. But <laughs> Paul enters by riding George like a horse. Yeah. <laughs> like almost donkey basketball, only it's donkey. Paul on George. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's some Paul on George action. There you go. The Beatles invented donkey basketball. I mean, again, this band <laughs> invented everything you know. Dun- donkey basketball, donkey Kong, donkey yeah. departing. Hey, John. Esther Lennon, Esther Lennon, come in, please. 
Right. So then the, it's, John decides to just cut class in the middle of it. Oh, my mates are here, so I'm going to leave class in the middle of it. There'll only be trouble for you. And they don't invite Stu. John kind of taps Stu on the shoulder. No, he ruins his painting. That's what it is. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Stu's over there. This is how we reveal Stu. It's, it looks like we don't know. It's just like some student. I thought John was just picking on some student. He just like goes up to his painting and like draws on it <laughs> like an asshole. <laughs> John graffiti Stu's work. You're right. Yeah. See you, Stu. Come on, lad. And then in the, in the British one, he goes, one day you're going to die soon. <laughs> It's not funny. Yeah. <laughs> he goes, foreshadowing. <laughs> then we're at the famous, the Woolton, probably Woolton Cemetery, right? I think that's where they used to hang out and sunbathe. Yeah, right. I don't know that it was on Eleanor Rigby's grave in <laughs> <Right>. real life. <laughs> but it's on the grave, but they found the Rigby grave or yeah. whatever you call that. Uh, yeah, yeah. And they're just chilling and drinking beer and eating more fish and chips or whatever on top of that thing. <laughs> There's one of those, like, you know, telling lines. I think George says something like, can't get no worse. <laughs> These are the knocks. That's life. It's got to get better, right? Can't get no worse. George says that. <laughs> George can't get no worse. And then the, the close of the scene is the line I've always remembered. Where are we going, fellas? <laughs> to the top! To what, what top? top? <laughs> to the very top, which is, of course, John's toppermost of the poppermost thing that they yeah, that's took the liberties. Line. It's the toppermost of the poppermost. You know who I blame for that? I blame technical advisor Pete Best on that no one. No question. That's <laughs> Pete's fault. I think he misremembered it. What did John say again? Oh, no. Go to the top. He just yes. kept saying we go to the top. I wasn't really paying that much attention. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Where are we going, fellas? To the, to the top. top. What top? To the, to the very top. top. I'll be joking. If we win it, it'll be a break for us. Tony, in my notes, here we are with Rory Storm. Doesn't stutter when he's singing. It's just when he's talking. Talking doesn't count. And then, yeah, so we've established Rory Storm. They are kind of, because we need this to be a drama, they are kind of being played like the rival band, almost like the enemy band or something like that. And is that the guy is supposed to be Alan Williams? Right, that's a good question. It's well, it's whoever. It's what I thought. I think it's an am- amalgam or whatever of Alan Williams and whoever was the guy that put him on that Scottish tour when they changed their names and all that. Right, I forget that guy's name, but that guy, Dick Jaws. <laughs> Dick Jaws two. The- Dick Jaws three in three D. <laughs> Dick Jaws 3, 3D, putting the D in D. I love Dungeons and Dragons. You two boneheads are thinking of the Beats Bengali, Larry Parnes, who, according to his obituary, renamed some of his stars for their sexual potential. He was later satirized by Peter Sellers on Songs for Swinging Sellers, produced by George Martin. I mean, he personally discovered such disc names as Lenny Bronze, Clint Thigh, Matt Lust, and such vocal groups as the Fleshpots, the Muckrakers. So then, yeah, we set up this audition, yeah, with this guy. They're called the Silver Beatles. We learned that at one time they were called the Rainbows. I don't remember that one. What kind of a name is Beatles? Ah, well, we started off as the Rainbows. Then the Moon Dogs, then the Quarry Men, then the Nurk Twins. Uh, that's me and him, though. Yeah, I, I love that they say we were the Nurk Twins. Paul right. says. Paul says they're the Nurk Twins. They mention the Moon Dogs, the Quarry Men, uh, and then they start playing, or Rain does, and those, those guys are miming to it. Now 
Now I'm gonna be a, I'm gonna be a gear asshole and say that those are the wrong guitars. I also can't, you know, where are you gonna find a Futurama guitar? You know, the one George played. <laughs> right. So I get it, I get it. But for the record, John did not play a Rickenbacker 325. He's playing a Harmony Stratotune Jupiter. Uh, Paul plays a right-handed Strat copy, which I just love. It's a str- he's playing a Stratocaster, <laughs> which the Beatles didn't touch Fender till like '65. I think "Ticket to Ride" was okay. the first song that used the uh, Fender gear. So <laughs> you know, it's a, and I love that the strap is still on the peg, like underneath <laughs> on the lower horn. Like it is. <laughs> Anyway, how about this, Tony? Uh, John tells whoever the drummer is to play an E. <laughs> right, yeah. Like the fuck does the drummer need to know the key for? Dizzy guy? Miss Lizzie and E. Yeah, <laughs> I'll sit in if you like. Dizzy Lizzie and E, and don't take it. Don't hit that floor, Tom. I know that floor, Tom's an F, and we ain't doing major sevens up here, motherfucker. <laughs> it got me good. Yeah. And so George, instead of playing the Futurama, he's playing a 60s uh, Ibanez. But uh, yeah, actually, technically, this would have been before John even had his Rickenbacker. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John was playing probably his club footy back then, the Hofner Club 40, which he called a club footy. The Beatles were playing club footy with those kids at the beginning of the film. <laughs> oh, John! Hey, these kids are a good bit for us. Back to me, John. Yeah, man, it's so, but here's where, like, the Pete Best, like, the heavy-handed of, they're like, let me hear, uh, the Alan Williams guys, like, let me hear you play without your bass player who's faking it. The guy playing Stu's turned up stage, wearing sunglasses, faking the bass. And that's when John starts his first, we're not playing without him. Come on, lads, I like what I'm hearing. Just do this one number without him, okay? No, it's not okay. George goes... He's a beetle. <laughs> right, like, right. There's that like we're one. It's the Three Musketeers mentality that they're setting up to break when Pete gets sacked. Exactly. Yeah, they they are. Yeah, they are establishing that this is a strong bond and it's unbreakable. And we go out dying. <laughs> you know. We don't play without him. You have done so far. No. Yeah. So they get the gig, uh, not the main gig, but another gig. They they need a drummer though. So cut to Pete auditioning. And again, he is just kicking ass on that drum, like smoke is coming out of the drum. And it's all eighth notes, single strokes. And uh, so, you know, he, get, he aces the audition, but Pete kind of demands that they take this band seriously. <laughs> goes, this is Pete's vision, after all. You guys are good, but this will have to be serious. Well, you guys are good. But this will have to be serious, no more can about. We're all in it together. That's what it means to be a Beatle. <laughs> I don't right. mean to laugh and just... Because God bless Pete Best. God bless him, but come yeah. on. Uh, oh, then we meet Aunt Mimi. And you said I'd never make a go of the guitar. hundred quid a week. I believe it when I see it. To show you how different movie making was when this was made, the actress who played Aunt Mimi was 31. Are you serious? No. <laughs> I just feel like age is so different. She was probably like 45. And she right. Like, right. Now we are she's probably... like, oh, you 90? I don't know. If your mother Julia was alive now, 
anything I did was all right with Julia. Aunt Mimi says, uh, while she's talking to John, about how Julia would feel, John says, anything I did was all right with Julia. And I thought that was a beautiful moment that John's not saying with my mom, but saying with Julia. I thought the scriptwriter got that right. I think that's the way John would have spoken. Oh, nice. You know, it's funny. Like, I could never understand what he said there because of the fidelity of all the recording. Well, I, <laughs> I, I used AI and I called Peter Jackson's company, Wingnut, and I had this in 5.1. This is the, this movie is the original cafeteria flower pot scene. <laughs> Get back. I will say this, man, like I'm going to give props to the location department because they did find the Rigby grave yeah, and they found Strawberry Fields, which I believe this Strawberry Fields location is just pretty much gone or does not look anything like it did in the day. I've been in front of it. I've been in front of the gate when I visited. Does it still say Strawberry Fields? It still has the sign in the gate. I've not been in, but yeah, the gate and the sign are still there. Okay, cool. Well, we get a cool like tilt down shot, uh, kind of a crane shot leading to John and Sin having one of their, you know, relationship. We have to have a relationship thing, of course, the drama, which actually their relationship was interesting and fraught and all that. And they actually do kind of touch on that, you know? They're kind of honest about it, right? They handle it, I think, really well. And the actress who plays Cynthia, who gets an and in the credit, does a phenomenal job. I hear Hamburg's wild. The girls are wild. They have girls in Hamburg. No, you're thinking of Munich. All right. Well, hey, man, they're doing it. They're in Hamburg. Uh, as evidenced by all that neon and all that kind of 70s-style music. <laughs> so, welcome to German man. Seek Heil and all that shite And they're Horst Fascher, who's, who's insane. Yeah, it's it's like, an, again, another amalgamation of Horst Fascher and Bruno Koschmeider. You know, I think he's the guy that booked them that on that first time around or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, he's a fun, he's a, this is a fun character. I mean, what a fun, what a fun role. Mumbling in German. <laughs> I want that yeah. part. So yeah, man, they start playing. Uh, I saw her standing there. They wrote that right away. <laughs> Apparently, now that was written early. I don't think it was this early. Neither was no. the one that's coming up in a minute. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and there's fist fights just before that when they go into the Kaiser Keller. That's the first time I heard the song "Night Train," which I've loved since the uh, '80s. Oh, that's a good song. Yeah. It's a great fucking tune. Um, and the first commercial in the VHS I have comes as the fist fights start during I saw her standing there. A lot of fighting in this movie. There's so much fight. Yeah, there's so many <laughs> brawls. Every time the Beatles play, there's a brawl. <laughs> Which is kind of <laughs> true, but I think yeah, exaggerated I a little. It wasn't yeah. all just mock shout and just mean kick everyone's ass.
But yeah, brawling is definitely represented in in this film. Also, cornflakes and milk also highly represented in this film. Yes, sadly, <laughs> only once in the American, but you get the setup in the British. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. There's a deleted scene. Yeah. There's a second. <laughs> There's two cornflake scenes in this. How come Laurie's Planet of Sound don't stock this rare music DVD? And what are they trying to hide? I need more than bloody cornflakes. Arms all night on cornflakes and milk. Anything about when we get a week's pay? The only English he spoke was Mac Shaw. Mac Shaw, Mac Shaw, Mac Shaw, Mac Shaw, Mac Shaw, Mac Shaw makes its first appearance while they're eating uh, cornflakes. That was, of course, what the uh, the German promoters were getting the Beatles to do when they first got there, and they were, you know, young puppies not knowing how to do. Entertainment, really. Right. They would just played instruments, but no, these Germans want to see a show. Mock Shao, stomp on the floor, make a lot of noise, get crazy, all that shit. So, and in fact, in the British version, there's an entire scene where they break the stage. Yeah, that does not exist in the American version. Yeah, that's very much like in Help, like when Ringo gets sawed through the, the recording studio and falls through the, the floor. Yes, totally. It, it feels inspired by that. I wonder why they left out of the American one, maybe for time or for commercials. That's another one that I couldn't believe yeah. they were doing that. Yeah. And that's when they do Kansas City, which is actually one of Rain's best performances. Por el grupo Rain. Yeah, it's funny, man. All the all the all the song choices they get some of them right. They got the covers right. A lot of the covers they get right. But there's this bit here where George, I mean, just to give him a, a turn at singing, George sings "Don't Bother Me." Something like that. Two yeah, and right. a half years early. 63. He wrote it in 63. It yeah. was on with the Beatles. So, and this is technically 61. So it's like, yeah, it's like a year and a half early. It's, it's, it's early. early. It's he hasn't early. written it yet. It's a little bit early. I don't think he'd had that cold yet. <laughs> but I love, yeah, he hadn't gotten a cold yet to write that song. No, but I, I, I do love hearing it. Like, I, I, funnily, that one doesn't bother me. Ha! Uh, oh. I, I didn't even mean to do that, but it didn't bother me because I like that song. And it's like, well, it's early enough. Fuck it. I, I I see what you did there. It did make me wonder, is that the only time we've seen Pete Best play drums on Don't Bother Me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be the only time. That's Pete, a mashup. And he like bounces a stick off one of his Tom Toms or something. He does his Keith Moon shit or whatever. Pete Best in this is Maxwell Caulfield in Greece too. He's just there to be good looking. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't offer any acting chops. He's got his shirt off four times with the scene when Brian enters later. Everyone's naked. I mean, a little heavy handed. Poor old Pete. 
If all the birds thought I was Jeff Chandler, I'm sure I'd be very tired too. Yeah, man. Yeah. And then there's a lot of scenes where they're kind of complaining about their lot in life and how they're, you know, their their living quarters are shit and they you know, gets into the drama and, and at one point John's complaining and he takes it out on Stu and Well, something's gonna happen soon. Right. We're never gonna get anywhere till we get out of this grotty bog we're playing in. Cut to the injury club getting boarded up, you know. They were so loud. They were so loud at the injury club that they closed down. Um, so they go to watch Rory's set at the Kaiser Keller, uh, where John calls Astrid. They meet Astrid, calls her Ava Braun. Yeah, that's a moment. <laughs> that's a moment. An interesting Ringo, Astrid, and Rory all together is kind of an interesting shot. Yeah. It's funny that there was no Klaus. That's my next note. Dundee is not Klaus. <laughs> Yeah, we don't have time for that. We don't have time for all that shit. <laughs> Pete Best was still pissed at him. I wanted to draw the cover for Revolver. <laughs> I love this scene, though, when, when the Beatles are playing at their new digs and they're, they're in drag. Uh, George is in his underwear. John's got a toilet seat around his head. Stu's got that, like, it looks like he's got, like, the the public transit sign for the, the Chicago Damon stop around I, his so neck. I was just going to say, he's right? got, it's a shame Stu didn't live to see the old Ravenswood line become known as the Brown line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Stu's going to Wicker Park right? when it was tough. Right? <laughs> Back when you had to know someone to get in the double door. I hate rap. <laughs> <laughs> this is Damon. Another fun moment is like during this scene, like someone's pouring a chamber pot on George. Yes, it's <laughs> while he's singing "Roll Over Beethoven." It's so ridiculous. <laughs> and also, right after that happens, uh, John and George in the microphone are talking about Astrid while the right. song's being played. And they go, "There's Astrid again. He certainly has eyes for our little stew, and he has eyes for her." <laughs> Yeah, and then later so on good. you see you see Paul kind of like trying to make a go at Astrid as well. He's like, you know, kind of you know, peacocking or whatever for her while, you know, later on. So again, more drama. Paul's a dirty dog. <laughs> I think that Eva Braun fancies our stew. Well, when the subject of Astrid Tony one of the cool things is seeing Astrid taking still shots yeah, man. in the moment to ask me why, which is one that they did in Hamburg. They did do it. Yeah. yeah that's accurate. Yeah. Maybe not on this first round. I don't think so. But whatever. I mean, now we're getting, you know. The version released has Ringo on it. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. But again, <laughs> again, they did play that song in Hamburg. Right. La-di-di-da. Now you're mine. Filmmaking wise, that collage is in a good place. It, it helps propel the action and the, the time and all that. I love it though. Here's one of my favorite moments is the, the Pete Best drum solo. <laughs> Oh, while the rest of them are backstage? Yeah. Yeah. So, again. And Ringo with the newspaper rocking out to it is the dumbest yeah. thing.
Yeah, that solo, man. It's just like, again, single strokes. There's nothing mind-blowing going on. There's no Gene Krupa. It's not Buddy Rich. But Ringo's into it. But meanwhile, <laughs> those guys are having a full dramatic scene. <laughs> You know, <laughs> backstage, <laughs> while Pete Best is alone on the drums. You know, we're broke again. It's almost a week until payday. Yeah, John's writing a letter during this drum solo. What's a letter to Maria? <laughs> he wants her to take it. So take a letter, Maria. And then Paul calls Stu James Dean. Talk about getting caught up with your own image, James Dean. Courtney. Yeah. Hey, Stu. Which, you know, uh, it's, it's going to come to blows. Yeah, they almost fight. Yeah. I love, and Stu goes, we should get back. Pete's getting tired. <laughs> <laughs> From what? <laughs> Rhythmically pounding for two minutes? Three cool cats. I will We do get to see Stu sing Love Me Tender, so thank you. Did that happen? Yeah. Okay. I don't know if I read that. Okay. From what I've read, I think it was in the tune-in book. Okay. That was his signature song. Yeah, and it's here where Paul takes the opportunity to make eyes at Astrid. Love me tender, love me long, take me to your heart. Oh yeah, this is when the cops take George away mid-song. <laughs> yeah, they come in and they it's as German police were known to do. They come in and interrupt whatever's happening and take you away from your family. Right. I mean, that's historically accurate, yeah. but that's not how it went down for the Beatles. No. And did the Beatles also set fire to the club? Not to be confused, the Adele song set fire to the rain. <laughs> right. I, I did. Confu- I, I was confused. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, from what I understand, it was Paul and Pete, like as a gag, I think they on their way out. They were leaving already, but on their way out, they like nailed a condom to the wall. Right. And set it on fire. Nothing happened. The club didn't get set on fire. The condom got set on fire and a little burn mark happened on the wall, I think is what happened. I, that was on Beetle Bloopers and Practical Jokes. <laughs> 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 right. Right. The Dick Clark production. It all ties together. <laughs> it all ties in. That's how that works. But yeah, in this telling of the story... Yeah, they like they go into their room and someone needs a candle and then They're trying to find George's birth certificate to yeah. prove that he's too young to be in the country. <laughs> right. To prove he's too young. <laughs> and they end up like lighting the entire place on fire. And- well, and as they're digging through George's suitcase, how much paper did George travel with? Is <laughs> he even seeing a suitcase of file cabinet? This one's gonna be safe for when Dark House Records becomes a thing. <laughs> I mean, I guess he was the tax man TJ. <laughs> It's a fire transition back to the UK where John goes back home to Aunt Mimi. Tail between his legs. Are the Beatles breaking up? Are the Beatles ever going to happen again? Aunt Mimi's pissed. Neither of them pay the fucking cab driver. 
Yeah, yeah. John's an asshole. That's a uh, fifteen and six there. Uh... Can you hang on a minute? Where that's where George meets Paul at the docks, and they decide they're gonna go to John's. I love this line. It's raining, and they're trying to coax John out of the house. We come to play, Johnny. I don't go out in the rain, Paul. It's not raining. It's Liverpool crying. It's Liverpool crying, which I think was on Ringo's Liverpool 8. (laughs) (laughs) It's also, actually, TJ, Liverpool crying is also a rain tribute band. So, I don't know if you know that one. They do all rain songs. El Grupo Rain. And Liverpool crying has the balls to call each other John Paul, George, and Ringo on stage. <laughs> it's not nice. They're eventually going to get sued for it. Eventually. Yeah. And that's when they'll do some Liverpool crying. Oh, no. We got sued. I think Paul has an unreleased track called Is It Raining in London? Oh. Oh. cut the... So they coax John into reviving the Beatles. Paul does this by putting on a straw carnival barker hat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As he was known to do. Your mother should know. <laughs> I love that Paul has this like goofy hat on in this scene. It's just like, why? You know, I've taken an improv class. Could I work with a hat and see what I find? <laughs> yeah. It's, they're doing, you know, if the Beatles doesn't work out, they'll do comedy sports, you know? <laughs> They'll do improv. That's their plan B is improv. <laughs> I've always found pinata full of bees overrated. Fine, you're changing on stage. What's revolutionary about that? I prefer the next show that Mick did, Citizen Gates. So I could tell that the first one was John and the second one was Paul. That's what it was. <laughs> do you remember when Ron West was... <laughs> <laughs> I do think, okay, I'm ripping on costumes yeah. for a minute, but I do think that they got some things right. I like cut to them playing the clubs uh, and they, they're wearing cowboy boots during Twist and Shout. Yes, and they have a close-up of it. Yeah, right. I mean, that was a thing. They wore cowboy boots for mm-hmm. a minute. They, had this, they look ridiculous during that period. Yeah. <laughs> uh, here's one of those other funny, like, Liverpudlian ones. So they get a letter from Hamburg or whatever saying, we want you back. <laughs> And we get a great Liverpudlian wit. They don't know the word forget, remember. All right. (laughs) Which is the original now and then. (laughs) Remember, forget, together forever, forever we part. Yeah, and then they they even drop in another thing. They John drops in a joke about, well, the Beatles with the astonishingly handsome Pete Best, and they kind of laugh about it. Yeah. I mean, he was, yeah, what was it? Moody, Moody and, magnificent. and magnificent. Yeah. 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 And he had his Tony Curtis haircut and all that. And his Tony Kornheiser style of drumming. <laughs> Enough already. Stop. You, know, you always talk about Chicago. Stop protecting you know this team. Well, as you know, TJ, yes, we have to go through it. But Stu uh, gets pummeled by a gang of toughs. And uh, yeah. Yeah. This did happen. We don't know. Uh, we don't know exactly what happened, but it did happen. Don't we think it was, didn't, did Lewis in allege to this that it was Dave Clark? <laughs> Catch us if you can. Mm. Yeah, I mean, allegedly. 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 <laughs> well, he gets his ass kicked and they go, let's get him to a hospital. And then in the States, there's a commercial for uh, Mitsubishi. <laughs> the gallant of 79. <laughs> 
And if you're not in the U.S., you get more nudity. <laughs> yes! Astrid and Stu in bed. Uh, he gives her a pendant or something. He gives her, I think it's that tiki thing from Brady Bunch. So that's probably actually why <laughs> Stu died. It's a three-parter. <laughs> <laughs> Hawaii, there's a spider in Peter's closet. <laughs> yeah. Alice throws her hip out. <laughs> Greg wipes out on his surfboard and Stu Sutcliffe dies. Not funny. Not funny, Brady Bunch. <laughs> the one thing I will say, at least they had the, the good sense to replace Stu with Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> Which is John Lennon in a way, right? It <laughs> totally <his> glasses. <laughs> I mean, for real, that's what Jeff Lynn should have done with the first Threedles is get the, <laughs> get Robbie Wrist in there to be John Lennon. <laughs> Robbie Wrist. <laughs> I met Robbie Wrist. Robbie Wrist almost played drums in my band for a minute. What? Yeah, oh, that's a, amazing. I have a friend who knows him, and I needed a drummer when I was in L.A., and uh, he almost did it. He plays guitar, though. He, he's actually a good shredder. I saw him do a, a cover Badfinger live at the, at the, at the, what's the LA, um, where all those cock rock bands played the deli, the Jewish deli, uh, Cantors. Cantors? Yeah. Oh, I fun. saw him play okay. a fucking Cantors, man. Wow. I love that place. Back to Astrid and Stu though. <laughs> this scared me. I didn't know what was coming where Astrid leans into Stu's face and she says, I want to. Of your penis. Hair. Yeah. But oh, I'm sorry, hair. But I mean, I didn't know where she was going with that. I literally was like, uh oh. Well, in the Israeli version, Stu gets uh, circumcision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so this is, yeah, this is where uh, Astrid invents the uh, beetle haircut. I mean, that's not how it went down. Astrid did not invent the beetle haircut. They went mm-hmm. down to France and and got their haircut and came back that way. Right. It was the haircuttery in Paris. <laughs> yeah. And they checked in on the app and they got a free neck rub. Actually, TJ, in the Lewison book, it says it was at a Fantastic Sam's. So, You know, this is why Beatles LTD fired Lewison's ass and went with Howlett. Get your haircut facts right, Lewison. Oh, uh, George Martin's family owned the Supercuts in Brighton. Bullshit. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, there's one last convo between John and Stu where John introduces Stu to Prellies. Yeah, Stu's taking Anison, and John <laughs> says, fuck that, take these pills. Right. Why don't you try one of mine? Make you forget your headaches. What are they? Got them from the bouncer. So drugs, we, we thank you. We check that one off. Drugs. Then Stu quits the Beatles. I'm leaving. And then while slow dancing at home with Astrid. To the same <laughs> porno, 70s porno music. <laughs> he drops dead. I believe his last words, TJ, are, mmm, smooch, smooch. <laughs> and then Astra lets out a scream that sounds like this. And then in the U.S., they go to commercial. And this leads up to the single greatest scene in just about any Beatle film ever. I don't believe we've waited this long to mine the comedy of this next scene. 
but with all due respect <laughs> to the genuinely tragic and historic death of the very earliest Beatles of Stu Sutcliffe, set up this next scene, Tony. Well, TJ, if I recall, John Lennon is wearing a black turtleneck. They're about to record Rubber Soul. Robert <laughs> Freeman's there for the cover shoot. <laughs> right. They have Stratocasters by now, this time for real. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, Amer- the American rubber soul in the ABC version. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yes. I've just seen a face. Um, so Astrid shows up at the Beatles flat and she says two words. You're dead. Followed by the melodramatic sting of some <laughs> loud ass soap opera music. <laughs> Totally a big minor key sting. No offense to the song Russians. <laughs> minor key sting. Um, yeah. So uh, are they at jo- are they at their flat or are they at where they're going to perform? Because they- I forget. I don't know. They're at some. They're in a hallway. I don't know. Because <laughs> so they, they go downstairs to perform. Oh, <laughs> they're dazed. Okay. The crowd goes nuts. And John, oh my goodness gracious, I didn't appreciate the comedy of this when I was a kid. John goes to the mic, <laughs> my best friend just died. And a German woman yells, Long tall Sally! <laughs> my best friend just died. Long tall Sally! And then John goes, It was my best friend. I saw her standing there. We went back a long ways. Roll over Beethoven! Roll over Beethoven! <laughs> the best part. <laughs> He talks about Julia, me mom. While, while George Harrison rolls his eyes, John goes, My mother Julia was my best friend. She died when I was 14. <laughs> Tony, what the fuck? <laughs> well, yeah, man. Let's just, let's call it out. John was not very professional that night. <laughs> <laughs> I hope his stage manager gave him some nasty notes afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Talk about bringing the shit down. But they kick into, the, they play the most serious version of Dizzy Miss Lizzie ever. <laughs> in E. <laughs> in E, of course, yeah. Where are we going? To the top. I can't hear you. To the top. What top? To the top. Let's rock and roll. But yeah, they've got better gear now. George is playing a Gretsch Tennessean, which he wouldn't get till 64, but fuck you. Who cares? <laughs> You're going down to Gearhead Basement for that? <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. But John's got like a Rickenbacker style kind of guitar, and Paul is playing Stu's bass. But yeah, it's this very like serious, like. It's like angry love me do in about 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's gone. Hey, we're looking for me, Bonnie, by the Beatles. What are the Beatles? They're fab, absolutely gear. All right, so cut to Nems, and we meet Brian with some kids that want to hear My Bonnie. The Beatles have recorded My Bonnie by now. Yeah. And they go into Nems asking for Brian to stock it. Brian says he will, and then Brian orders 6,000 copies of Love Me Do. That he <laughs> buys. <laughs> Now, the, are those are those are the same two girls that are kind of a runner in this whole thing, right? Yes, they're the original Apple Scruffs. Beatles, never heard of them. They must be from Germany then. Why? Because it says they're from Hamburg. Stupid. You're stupid. Yes. Yeah, so, okay. So yeah. So now we get we get Brian 
I love this. I, he goes to check him out at the cavern, and they're playing Cry, Cry for, a for a Shadow. Cry for a Shadow. It makes me so happy to hear that that's great historical accuracy. That's good stuff. And Pete did play on that. He did play on that, yeah. Yeah. And now Paul's got his Hoffner bass, so it's getting, it's getting together. Stench. And they faint. People packed in like sardines. And the noise. Why didn't you leave that? All right. I will. Here, here's where I love this, where Brian finally meets the Beatles, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> this is goofball. So he, he just walks into their dressing room, and they all happen to be shirtless at the time. Especially Pete. <laughs> I think even Paul is pulling his trousers up as, uh-huh. as Brian enters. Excuse me. What brings Mr. Epstein here, then? Anyway, so they're creating, they're setting up this whole thing like Brian's gay, you know, uh, which was controversial back then. Even in 79, it was still like, whatever, you know, taboo or I don't know what you didn't talk about it or I don't, I don't know, man. It was nowadays that's called Florida. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It could be you. The Florida curse always comes true. Regardless, TJ, he sets up a meeting. <laughs> in which the Beatles just stare at him silently. <laughs> it's very awkward. The actor who plays Brian is great. I want to say I think he does a great. He and Cynthia are the best parts of this film. I mean, yeah, yes, I guess, right? I mean, I, I, I'm not knocking on his acting. I'm just talking about the choices that were made by perhaps the director to make Brian very unBrian like. I think he gets Brian like when he gets emphatic he's confident but yeah I think it plays to the fact that Brian was nervous and hiding his love away so to speak yeah I think this film does the actor captures the essence however poorly written it was I think the actor does a great job with the material perhaps you could come to my office above the Whitechapel store Thursday at three again more of this classic Liverpoolian wit after Brian leaves, Paul says, Is that uh, Thursday at three then? No, three on Thursday. <laughs> oh, the Classic Liverpool, Liverpool comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the humor of the Beatles captured <laughs> birth of the Beatles. Uh, they kind of treat Brian like shit early on. Like, yeah. it's not playful. Like, I think the real no. spirit, and l- this gets better when they meet George Martin, but like, they're they're kind of being dicks to him. That's not something that I feel like was very true. Not everything was like a <laughs> challenge Brian moment, from my understanding. No, no. I, I'm going to push back. They were mean to George Martin, too, when they meet him. They're total assholes to him. They keep the, the tie joke, but yeah, for the most part, when they call him sir and stuff, it, it doesn't feel right. Plus, the actor playing George Martin's a decade younger than the Beatles in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's Giles. <laughs> yeah, so Brian basically sets down the new rules. He wants to tidy them up, and John's resistant to that, but they end up signing the contract. So we'll be a guinea pigs. At one point, Brian calls Paul a prima donna. This is at the DECA audition, or at some audition. Because of the red light? I think that's New Year's Day. I think that's a DECA audition. Yeah. In 62. What's that flashing red light? Can we have it switched off, please, Eppy? And none of your prima donna scenes, Paul. What I love at the audition, though, is that the engineer asks Pete why his hair is different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, someone's going to say this. Why have they all got their hair cut one way and you haven't? Someone's got to point this out. Nobody ever asked me. 
I think he did try it once. I forget if he tried it once. I thought he tried it once and then was like, no, I like my Tony Curtis hair. Uh, but they, you know, for their audition, they do Long Tall Sally, which, no, they didn't do at the deck audition. And they also mess it up. Yeah, it's incomplete. And they have to start over again, yeah. Uh, they get rejected. But Brian has the tapes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Gentlemen. Gentlemen. I'm sure you'd like to be the first to know. We got the tapes. Cut to a rehearsal of Love Me Do. And uh, yeah, this is where the Beatles just lay in and start lashing out at Brian. Like, why aren't we famous yet? Why aren't we on top of the world? Uh, this is John in full-fledged fucking gangster mode. You put us in these bloody monkey suits, messed about with our style, and it hasn't worked, has it? It has. Better than ever. Ah, shut up, Brian. I'm sick of that talk. I'm sorry. I'm not giving up. I'll start again in the morning. Why? They've said no everywhere, haven't they? Look, John! I'm trying my best! My family think I'm wasting my time, my money! Don't tell me about your family and friends. And then they go into Love Me Do again. It's very dumb. Right. (laughs) Yeah, it's so funny. I love it. Drama! We need the drama. So then Brian, it's kind of a rough trade situation. And Brian ends up getting attacked on the street. John busts into his office uh, to discover, you know, he's all messed up and attacked. And John knows why. And it's kind of, this is pretty whatever, if you, whatever you want to call it, woke or whatever for late 70s. But they've put it out in the open that John accepts Brian. They don't say the word gay, but they mean it. And they're upfront about it. Tony, John actually says, all credit to the scriptwriter, John says, It's all right, Brian. Nothing to be ashamed of, you know. Any loving. Anything between people that's loving's all right. There's too much pain in this world. We knew about you the first time I was here. Don't matter to us, Epi. What a great written phrase. Yeah. I think that's great that that's in there and that message is in there. There's no way in hell I think John would have said that back then when he's, you know, he's still a tough northern guy that, you know, he'll get around. He'll get around to that, but I don't think he's there in 62. Maybe one day in a couple of years, you and me can go to Spain and touch each other's dongles and then we'll see how it all works out. I guess it's just fab. Girl, I've never been to Spain. Oh, I kind of like the Beatles. Uh, so then we go, I guess this is EMI, but it's kind of the version of Decca. Brian goes to the recording studio and the guy, he's kind of a, a version of Dick Rowe at Decca who says like guitars are on the way out. Yes. Or he, he's not Liverpoolian. Beatles will be bigger than Elvis Presley. Guitars. On the way out, Brian. And then George Martin walks in. <laughs> and here's the tape. Here's the audition tape. And then they hear like studio banter of them like being like quasi funny, but not really. But oh, they're funny too. Or whatever. <laughs> Such a forced line where George Smiles goes, oh, they're funny too. You've been practicing, John. Not me. Okay, oh, look, who's been practicing? <laughs> oh, there's a sense of humor too. <laughs> 
I love for some reason Brian is showing George uh, headshots. And as we're talking about each Beatle, John and Paul are gifted, prolific songwriters. Here's Pete Best, drummer, heartthrob type. Yes, yes. <laughs> heartthrob type. Yeah, he's typecast as a heartthrob. Yeah. Um, Further reiterating how hot Pete Best is. Yes, Pete. Remember, Pete Best, technical advisor. And then we get into Pete Best being sacked. First of all, are they smoking pot in 1962 when they're all hanging out celebrating EMI? That's what it's inferring. It is inferring that. And I did read in the Lewison tune-in book that they had actually tried marijuana before Bob Dylan. I knew that too, but not celebrating getting a contract with EMI. No, no, no. No, I think it was like offered to them, you know, somewhere, somewhere along the way, maybe in Hamburg. I forget where I forget, right. but it didn't become a thing until Dylan. Yeah. So, yeah, that I, yeah, that scene is interesting. And then it gets more gangstery. Well, Brian's like, I, I love it. George Martin's recommended us to EMI. They've accepted. I'll stop by and tell Pete on the way. So he knows. And the Beatles are like, we'll tell him, Brian, you go home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden it becomes like we never liked Pete anyway. Where did, <laughs> right. like I know what's going Beatles. on, but where did that come from? It's very quick. Yeah, it's yeah. I think they're just trying to get through the story. And as mentioned, we've got Pete Best as technical advisor, so it's gonna have that shade to it. Uh yeah. Oh, George goes, we all agree then. George is the one who makes it clear that it's time to fire Pete. It's like I don't think George ever said anything like that. <laughs> no, no, no. There's they're they're taking so many liberties with the uh, the art form here of storytelling. And there's ominous music. Pete Best is summoned to Brian's office. Brian's office looks like a private detective office. <laughs> Brian Epstein, <laughs> private. It does look that way. Yes, it does. And I love it when they're explaining to Brian. Paul goes, "Pete's not a beetle," and John goes, "He's too conventional." And Brian goes, what do you mean, Pete's out? And Ringo's in. He's very popular. Girls sleep in his garden. It's just defensive <laughs> Pete nonstop. What do you mean, Pete's out? And Ringo's in. I like Pete. He's very popular. Girls sleep out in his garden. It's good for the whole group. Pete's not a beetle. He's too conventional. Anyway, Ringo's a professional. This doesn't make sense. This is, yeah, a.k.a. The, the Pete Best story. So, yeah, man, we get a teary monologue from Pete. <laughs> is there a line that they, someone says Pete is the better drummer <laughs> than Ringo? This is the most amazing thing. So, yes. And here's what happens. All of Pete Liverpool says, why did nobody tell me? Nobody mentioned it before. Does Ringo know? Has it been arranged then? And then Brian goes, they think Ringo's a better drummer. That ain't true. I know it. You know it. Even Ringo knows it. All of Liverpool knows it. And then Tony, they cut to what looks like the January 6th crowd protesting <laughs> oh, yeah. Pete getting fired. Those are Pete Best insurrectionists swarming the cavern, <laughs> TJ. It's like, they busted into the cavern. In honor of Pete, I'm going to take a dump on this Nancy Pelosi <laughs> paper clip. <laughs> I'm going to smear my own feces on the walls of Alan Williams' DJ booth. <laughs> Pete, Pete Best never urinating on the floor of Nems forever. <laughs> yeah, so Ringo earns his keep by doing one of those uh, bop, 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 
Forever, it goes into a single stroke, and he's breaking a sweat. It goes on forever, and right before that, John says, "Before this evening's over, they'll forget there ever was a Pete Best." (laughs) Right? They're they're so evil about it. (laughs) John is so gangster in this. It's so funny. (laughs) And then Ringo proving what a better drummer he is. They go into I saw her standing there, and Ringo overplays it with the crash symbol. He's also got that weird left arm that looks like it's animatronic, like Ringo's the original (laughs) Rockefeller explosion drummer in this. Ladies and gentlemen, the world's most advanced entertainment has now joined forces with the world's finest pizza. And what's funny, man, like with when he gets his Beatle haircut, he kind of looks like Sean Penn, don't you think? <laughs> he totally does. Ringo Starr is Sean Penn and I am Sam in Birth of the Beatles. <laughs> in Birth totally. of the Beatles. He's going to get that uh, drug kingpin in Mexico's <laughs> arrested. Oh, Tony, I don't mean to go back, but I've got to say this. When George Martin is listening to the Beatles playing on the tape, it's playing a song that George Martin's playing piano on. <laughs> Again, the reviews were uh, very accurate and wildly inaccurate. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny. There's even, so when they meet George Martin and they're in the studio with George Martin, they keep the, I don't like your tie bit. Yeah. And they talk about recording. How do you do it? Which most Beatle fans in 79, do you think most Beatle fans knew that there was a Beatle demo of that? A fully fleshed out demo? I don't think so. Yeah, because it wasn't until the early 80s that we got all those uh, the stuff that went on to ultra rare tracks and all the bootlegs that we know. From, I think, the John Barrett cassette tapes from yeah. EMI Studios. Yeah, which was that 82? I forget. It was Might somewhere in the early 80s. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, they maybe they knew about that. Maybe they didn't. You know, I think hardcore fans maybe knew about that, but it wasn't common like Beatle nerd knowledge like it is now. Right. But again, the way they go about this whole scene, like they're trying to be, that tie line is actually funny, but the way it's portrayed in this movie, it's like, it's not, there's no humor and George is just like an asshole, you know? Yes. They, they, they all look like assholes. George Martin. Juicer. Afternoon. Now, if there's anything you don't like, just let me know. Well, for a start, I don't like your tie. Yeah, it, it's it's playing on two different tones. And even like the line that should be funny, George Martin goes, you trying to teach me my business? And John goes, no, sir, I'm trying to teach you our business. <laughs> like, right. what the fuck? And then, and then it's John that declares it's going to be a number one. Right. We have a song called Please Please Me. It's going to be number one. Everything we do is going to be number one. <laughs> oh, yeah, then why is it on the Beatles one, you dicks? <laughs> Kick off for me to you, even remixed. <laughs> Are you yelling at Birth of the Beatles about this? I'm yelling at Dick Clark and you too, Seacrest, even you, Dunkelman, even though you got out. <laughs> well, yeah, after yet another unnecessarily adversarial exchange, uh, <laughs> please, please me goes to number one. And that success, the Beatles are, they've got success. Uh, thank you girls on the radio. Tony, <laughs> listen to thank you girl. We're going to drop it now. It's okay. off. 
on both versions, the chords and the words don't match. Maybe it's an only a Northern song tribute, but the chords are going wrong in Birth of the Beatles. Thank you, girl. I swear to God. <laughs> the chords are going wrong. It will wrong. fuck you up. <laughs> Listen to it. I did. I thought I heard that somewhere in this soundtrack thing. I did hear a weird edit where, yeah. I've, maybe it was this song. Listen to all the. I went back. And it's like oh, it's. It's like what? <laughs> yeah. So you know they're partying in this hotel room or where whatever it is, and you know there's scantily clad women there, and Aunt Mimi shows up, and <laughs> she hates it. I hope this is what you want, John. <laughs> if only your mother Julia could see you now. I love. <laughs> I love that she puts in her name in there. Well, but so funny in the American version, that's when John goes, oh, Mimi, half of what I say is meaningless. (laughs) Yeah, man. All right. So this is the great, the Billy Graham uh, (laughs) cameo. In both versions, this movie's on the right side of history, basically portraying Billy Graham as a doofus calling the Beatles a passing fad. Well, apparently today, the famous American evangelist Billy Graham labeled the Beatles as a passing phase. The symptoms of the uncertainty of the times. Yes, I think that's fair. Passing phase. Which did not happen, by the way, in 1962 or 63. Right, right. Obviously, yeah. It was when they got famous in 64. The, the U.S., yeah, yeah. So, right. Historically, this is inaccurate, but it plays up... Uh, <laughs> Here's what I love. I love as soon as like Billy Graham says the Beatles are a passing fad. John, John turns into like the Incredible Hulk or whatever. It's like <laughs> everyone get the fuck out of here. He rips Kicks the TV. Off. Yeah, he yanks the plug out of the wall. <laughs> he like shoves a photographer. He is Sean Penn. He's, John Lennon's more Sean Penn than Ringo. And then, then he's he has a door slamming tantrum, room clearing. Yeah, I love it. I just love the the psychotic drama, you know. Yeah, he's kicking all the media out. John hates the woke media. I've been telling you for years. <laughs> it's a preview of bed piece. Yeah, it's it's one of those just weird, weird moments. British Beatlemania is apparently driving John crazy. And then John and Brian have a come to Jesus moment that's basically like the last extended dialogue scene. The movie ends very weird. Yeah, it's this sad music, ominous music. (laughs) Brian calls John Lennon the Pied Piper, (laughs) leading people into the Mersey River. And then he breaks down their Wizard of Oz identities. Paul, you're the heart. George, you're the soul. John, you're the mind. And Ringo, you're the flesh and blood. John, I want you to remember something. No single one of you is the Beatles. Each one of you is a part. Paul is the heart of the group. George, it's so. You're the mind. And Ringo? He's the flesh and blood. Real trouble in medical show, aren't we? What does that mean? (laughs) 
Well, I mean, he's kind of accurate. I, I actually kind of get what he's saying. It actually, they do kind of line up. Paul having silly love songs, George with his spirituality, the soul, John with his acerbic lyrics or whatever, you know, the the book, the the bookish one. Mm-hmm. And then Ringo's the flesh and blood. He's the drums. He's the, you know, he's the timekeeper, the heartbeat. You're the religious guy. Is there a Cain and Abel thing to him kind of murdering the career of Pete Best? And that's the flesh and blood <laughs> or in his mouth of the drummer whose livelihood he took away. You hear me, Ringo? Choose love, not me, guy. Rewind forward. <laughs> My VCR broke. <laughs> Yeah, Pete Best technical consultant mate Ringo, a stutterer hater. Right, a stutterer hater. (laughs) Ringo would never hate a Rory store more than when he (laughs) tried to speak. Um, Tony, you mentioned the sad music that plays during this last full dialogue scene with John and Brian. There's no sad music in the States. The version I know is underscore free. Like when they're playing footy in the streets of Liverpool. (laughs) pool there's no music in the american version of that either and it's scored like a clive davis pop opera in the british version i want to know who made these decisions and if they're still alive i want to be the show that figures this stuff out (laughs) track them down beetle forensics we're going to talk to the guy who scored the birth of the beatles (laughs) american version (laughs) american version (laughs) what were dick clark's notes do you still have them are they typewritten (laughs) were there little carrots handwritten carrots and little scribbles (laughs) how come all dick clark's notes are seacrest sticky (laughs) i will say they employ that sad music earlier in a scene uh where sin breaks it to john that she's pregnant yeah we forgot about this sad music and john says we'll have to get married we'll have to get married cue sad music (laughs) (laughs) cue sad harmonica music in the american version at least it sounds like stevie wonder doing a rewrite of a day in a life and then john goes our kid's gonna have a proper home and a mother and a father not like me and cynthia looks like john's gonna hit her and I'm waiting for John to say, Whoa. you better run for your life if you can, little girl. <laughs> right, right. Which he, he wrote right then and there in this movie. <laughs> That's where <laughs> Run For Your Life was written. And then, by the way, they cut to the next scene with Ringo, who we've just met a minute ago, playing piano. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Which he did. He which did, he did though. Why yeah. didn't Paul sit down at the piano? I don't know. I will say, I'll defend that because there's that famous black and white footage of Ringo playing on the piano. You know what I mean? True. I think someone takes the, the, the door, right? Puts it on his fingers. Yeah. It's a What's gr- that called? The, with the, the cigarette. Cover. Yeah, with the cover. And you're smoking a cigarette. You're, you're totally right. And uh, there's a joke here that feels regressive when they say to John, would you, George asks, would you recommend married life for everybody? And John goes, only men and women, George. <laughs> So he's not that woke. <laughs> Apparently he ain't woke. <laughs> it is 1962. <laughs> Being woke killed the Beatles. That's why I stopped listening after eight cheese sweet. <laughs> the other thing I love, uh, back to Abbey Road when they're yeah. about to meet George Martin. I love that A, the Beatles... <laughs> are hanging around at the studio waiting for the producers to show up, <laughs> which kind of was that DECA audition, actually. Yeah. Uh, that's a different story. But um, I love that John went out and bought fish and chips for everybody. <laughs> it's so great. And then offers George the greasy one. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, man. All right. So the Beatles are on top. We hear she loves you. They're going to America. Now they're in America. Cut to the plane. And they're doing their famous uh, press conference with a quippy walk and talk. Oh, it feels uh, great. Oh, not really put me on, though, really. Just a little bit. How does it feel to be put on? Hey, George, what do you consider the most important thing in life? Love himself. Oh. <laughs> yes. Ringo, do you resent fans ripping up your sheets and using for souvenirs? Well, I don't mind as long as I'm not in the sheets when they're ripping them up. Holy shit. Both press conference scenes are totally different. They end the same, but both, pre- I mean, talk about Beatle forensics. This blew my mind. In addition to. Aunt Jesse slash Uncle Jesse um, being in the nude painting scene, which blew my mind. There's different press content in this. Like, that what right? the that. fuck? Okay. <laughs> Whose decision was this? Right. You know, sometimes they do have to shoot things twice, one for TV and one for, you know, theaters or whatever. Perhaps that's what was going on. Like Dick Clark knew this was going to be on TV. So they shot things twice or whatever, two ways. Is that still a thing, Tony? You work in commercials and TV and film. Do they still make TV versions of things or do they just rely on editing for that at this point in time? I mean, to be quite honest, I've only worked on one film a long time ago and I was a PA. It was like one of my first jobs. So I've only worked on TV. So whatever we shoot, we shoot. And if they have to fix something, they do it in ADR, the audio dialogue recording later in some soundstage somewhere. Forget, God, fuck, I thought you were more of a film guy. What the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> oh, partner with TV. Yeah, TV's a wonderful medium, apparently. I read about Lou Reed. I wish I had a talking book that told me how to act and look. Yeah, I mean, the thing about the, the again, like all the humor that the Beatles genuinely had when you try and do these like carbon copy versions of it, it just, it falls flat. It's so stale. They, they don't come across as like witty and fun. They come across like asshole ventriloquist dummies. Yes, you're totally right. It's delivered unfunny. It's received unfunny. And it, right. sh- it shows you how well comedy works in the hands of professionals when the Ruddles spoof of this is drop out hilarious. And yeah. this doesn't work at all. No, no. And like I said earlier, it looks like they're walking through like an office building in Midtown. (laughs) (laughs) Two doors. Are they at JFK or, (laughs) you know, are they at like, I don't know, like a dentist's office? Yeah, they're in the most New York place they could find in the, you know, in the UK (laughs) for their budget, you know. They didn't have a ton of money. They had money. They had Dick Clark money, but not Dick Clark had all that money. He did, but, you know. I mean, well, it looks how it looks, and it, the actors are in it as, uh, you know, it's not. <laughs> they blew it all in that heli. It's like SCTV with Johnny LaRue. They blew it all in that helicopter shot at the beginning of the uh, <laughs> beginning of the film. Yes, they did. Yes, they did, man. Uh, here, here's where the money went. Actual Ed Sullivan footage from Ed Sullivan, at least of Ed. <laughs> We don't obviously see the real Beatles there. That's got to be stolen for years. You've seen those crowd shots and Ed throwing to not the Beatles and so many different things. It's hilarious. They do it in the Ruddles and they have Ed going, Ruddles. They, they clearly overdub it. Yeah, but 
I love when they throw in Ed Sullivan. And then in a set, they clearly did not blow out of the set design for the Ed Sullivan show. <laughs> exactly. Like, right. <laughs> fucking boy genius got it better on SNL a couple months ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's true it's true yeah i mean again they yeah they had the constraints of the budget i think now tonight you're gonna twice be entertained by them right now and again in the second half of our show ladies and gentlemen the beatles <laughs> And they don't do all my loving. They do. I want to hold your hand, which is not yeah. true for the how they were introduced to America. Yes. And Ringo doing his best Keith Moon impression. <laughs> <laughs> hold your hand. Yeah, man. And then yeah, then it ends right. I- that's it, what I got. It ends very differently because it ends in the UK. It ends with She Loves You. In the US, the end credits are over orchestral My Bonnie. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. This, to my knowledge, uh, second shout out to Lori's Planet Assam, which has some mm. great obscure music and DVDs in the city of Chicago <laughs> in the North Center area. Uh, maybe they have this on DVD, but there's never been an official home video or DVD or streaming release of this. This remains out of fucking print in any in except in bootleg form. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, Tony. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, chalk this up with the uh, complete Beatles, Beatlemania, the film. All those kind of relics of... Uh, let it be? Right, let it be. Right, the original yeah. Michael Lindsay Hogg cut. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting. It is interesting as we get into like Beatle history and the revisionist history of it to a degree, like Get Back, suddenly Get Back. You know, we talked about this back then. It's like, oh, it's the happiest Beatles ever on the planet. But, you know, they weren't that happy. They were fighting and all that stuff. And there were money disputes. And that's why the Beatles broke up and Alan Klein and blah, 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 blah. But as human beings, when you remove all that shit, they were having fun. They were always friends. Right. And yeah, what is their story? This is a version. I think this is a version. Again, this is not a documentary. I do think biopics are hard. They're really hard. I don't know how many wigs were employed in this. It all looked like they're real hair. Or how many but... Tories. <laughs> right. Or no nothings. <laughs> but they, I, think they get, I think they get most of the events right. I think they're just switching things around. They're using a lot of artistic license. They're adding a lot of nonsense so that they can up the dramatic stakes. There's that melodramatic score. You know, all those things happening. Like, that didn't happen. Like, you know, I don't think Brian and the Beatles got into a shouting match while they were figuring out Love Me Do, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, also, where's Andy White? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, right. Uh, it, that's the director's cut version has that, you know, right. the, uh, the three hour version of this movie. It's impossible for me. Uh, uh, someone who's become a friend of the program, one of the Beatle authors from Beatle fan and uh, the newspapers around the, the, the world guy named Al Sussman, who we've gotten to know a little bit through communication around Beetlefest. We joked about this movie with him. He's a little older than we are. I think his generation thinks this movie is an atrocity. (laughs) 
I'm so glad you mentioned Al. Al, I hope you're listening. In fact, he commented after last week's episode that one of the very first things he wrote for Beatle Fan Magazine in 1979 was a review of Birth of the Beatles, in which I believe he described the film as a, quote, maudlin, melodramatic, historically flawed mess. Check out Beatle Fan Magazine and look up Al Sussman. You'll learn a thing or two. I think probably current generations would say this movie's an atrocity. <laughs> I say this as someone who got into this as a six-year-old and probably from the ages of six until 11 or 12 wore this VHS tape out that my parents had the foresight to help me record when I was six. This movie and how I viewed Liverpool and how I viewed Hamburg and just some of the Beatles story of the, you know how filthy their original room was and the cornflakes and they're hungry and exhausted this really taught me a ton about the Beatles that some of which is poorly acted, poorly directed and far-fetched is enough within the pocket of the story to have inspired me even more to learn about it. So seeing complete Beatles a few years later felt like a logical companion to this. So I rate this movie higher than I probably should because this is in my bones the way Beatlemania is from that era of right. growing up loving the Beatles and using these non-Beatles sources as springboard. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. Nostalgia's at play for sure. That's the way the Beatlemania movie is for me. I do think this, yeah, this movie also suffers from things of its time, like pacing. The pacing of this film is very much of the 70s. There's a lot of air. It can feel lethargic in places, you know? Um, so a lot I think of dark I th fighting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was shot on film and you need certain lights to brighten up certain things. You know, it's not all digital and you fix it in post. Yeah, man. I, again, you gave it three and a half. I'll give it three. Again, I think it's a great effort for its constraints. Things like budget. The Pete Best angle, I think, makes this a very historically interesting take on it. You know what I mean? Yes, his yeah. involvement and the, the fact that, as we said in the uh, previous episode, this is the one big Beatles story type movie that came out while John Lennon was alive. Yeah. And it's a telling portrayal of John when yeah. he was still with us before he became kind of the, you know, the angel or whatever you want to call Saint it. St. John, which the, the um, Andrew Salt movie, which I love, the Imagine movie began the rehabilitation of John Lennon as St. John. Yeah. You can quibble with it, but that's, it certainly worked on me and made me love John <laughs> even more. Yeah. Yeah. Again, and it's like get back too, right? Like if you focus on the good things, then it feels good. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought they did a good job. I thought it was a great effort. Again, great effort. Execution. Yay. You did your best. So... Thank you, TJ, for enlightening me. I hadn't seen this movie, actually, since this whole thing. So, Tony, I'm thrilled you watch it. I hope that our listeners have had a chance to watch it. By the time this is published, I have tried to put it up on my YouTube page, which is TJS Beatles. If it's not there, it's been taken down, and I have been arrested for other things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you to our producer, KC. Uh, for the Untitled Beatles podcast, I'm Tony. And I'm TJ Shanoff. And Tony, Ray Ashcroft never, Michael Ryan forever. Michael Ryan forever. <laughs> Untitled Beatles podcast. 
like and subscribe.